The Platforming Our Artists podcast series is supported by Torch as part of the Humanities Cultural Programme. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode in our Chameleon Platforming Artists podcast. And we're today here with Professor Fiona McIntosh. Thank you so much for joining us, Fiona. And just to tell our audience a bit about Fiona, she's been absolutely integral to the production, both in 2018 when we put on the first show and recently helping us do everything we can to, to get the show on. She's a fellow at St Hilda's, a professor of classical reception at Oxford and the director of the Archive of Performances of Greek and Roman Drama. I got that out. We'll call it the APGRD from now on and we'll certainly be talking about that later. And just to talk a bit about Fiona's work, um, your most recent book that you published just uh, recently is um, Performing Epic or Telling Tales, which we're also going to discuss later, I think. Uh, you've generally written widely on the reception of ancient theatre. You've done some a lot of work on Irish theatre. And the book that started me off last year when rewriting the play was Medea Performance History, which is an interactive multi-e-book about the history of Euripides' Medea, which is also something we'd love to talk about. And that book was done with the APOGRD, and I think something that would be great uh, to tell our viewers a bit about is what the APGRD is and what you do as the director there and you know what is it to someone who's never heard about it before. Hello Shiv, it's very very nice to join you on this podcast and um, in some ways you know having had a number of conversations now I hadn't realized over quite such a long period it's really nice to to join you in this this podcast series. Yeah, the APGRD, very interesting to see how, how many different ways people um, uh, attempt to pronounce it. But as you say, it stands for the Archive of Performances of Greek and Roman Drama. Uh, it's an archive, which means it's a collection of um, lots of exciting pieces of, of uh, paper, memorabilia, that um, often theatre companies like you don't have a home for, um, but people like us, researchers really want to house. And in Oxford, in the Classic Centre, we're very lucky. We've got the spectacular uh, study room, as we call it. Uh, it's on the first floor in, in, in a wonderfully welcoming, beautiful building. Um, and it's got a fantastic library. Uh, we think mostly the focus is on Greek theatre, but it's, it's really all aspects of classical reception, which means all different kinds of way that the Greek and Roman texts have been received in the modern world. So a really great library. But we have a collection, as I say, of bits of pieces of paper, of film, um, of cuttings and reviews, all of which are kept in our store in the basement. So we're quite a big team in this research centre. We're lucky to have uh, two archivists in posts. One um, person who very much specializes Claire Kenwood on, on the interactive multimedia ebooks, um, which we're going to talk about later. Um, and Claire Barnes, who some of you may well have met at various points and Claire works with us. I mean, she's a researcher, she's doing a doctorate, a uh, very exciting doctorate um, on, on uh, reception of, uh, well, mostly contemporary performance poetry and especially focusing on K Tempest. But, on Monday and Tuesday, we're very lucky to have her holding the fort, making sure that our databases, which sounds terribly dull, but actually the way anyone can find out, um, you know, what production of Medea happened, uh, say, last year or the year before. So, for example, your BAME, wonderful BAME Medea uh, production is not only recorded on the database and well, all artists and 
every member of the creative team will be recorded there uh, for everyone anywhere internationally to access now and in the future, um, as we hope. Um, but also Claire will be the person, obviously not during the pandemic, Claire Barnes would be the person who would greet you if you wanted to consult anything in our archive that wasn't yet digitized. And some of those things may well be play scripts. So we have um, play scripts by very distinguished poets um, over the years. So we've got quite a bit of material saved by um, Tony Harrison. And we even have rehearsal scripts. So obviously for researchers, that's really interesting. They can watch the transformation. And you know, you've been there in, 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 in the studio when a text begins in one way and ends up, of course, on the opening night and even during the course of the run, looking and sounding very, very different. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure to keep our rehearsal scripts. <laughs> we love them. That's exactly what we like. I think what's remarkable about this, and I think a misconception that I just found out I had just in the conversation with you before the podcast, and I think many people do, is it may be called the ancient um, archive. God, I can't remember the name. The ancient uh, <laughs> archive, not ancient, the archive of, um, of what seems like, you know, bygone ages, but it's contemporary work that you're doing. It's contemporary productions. It's contemporary people working on the classics. And it isn't just, you know, academics sitting in an ivory tower. It's it's people who are putting on plays who are actually actively interacting with the text. So as much as it's, you know, plays from well over two millennia ago, it's, it's real life now work that you're doing at APGRD. Absolutely. And I mean, obviously, you know, that's not to say that there isn't a very strong and important kind of theatre history angle. And indeed, we even have a database, which is very ancient, which tries to map, you know, performances in time in antiquity. And, and in addition to the historical um, strand, which I have contributed to quite, quite a bit, we have the pleasure, and it really is the pleasure, and also the extraordinary learning capacity in our engagement with artists. So a lot of work I've done has been in a rehearsal studio with, you know, some fantastic artists, uh, many of whom, you know, maybe began life as a professional dancer, but our point of contact, for example, I've worked a lot with Struan Leslie, who started the movement department at, at the RSC, but he, he really is such an interesting interlocutor, person to exchange ideas with in relation to choruses. And so not only has he done workshops with us over a number of days um, with other choreographers and composers in the room, but also Struan and I have kind of co-written stuff, exchanged lots of exciting ideas. And similarly, I've worked, you said before, I'm very interested in Irish theatre, had a great privilege to work with um, Marina Carr in a, quite some detail on, uh, hearing how her recent work, number of recent works, Hecuba and a much more recent kind of Oedipus project are, are, are developing. So that part of the work of the APGRD, and, and that's before I've even talked about my colleagues and who they're working with. And in some cases, actually commissions, you know, there was a time when we were even in a financially rather privileged position, thanks to the Onassis Foundation, um, to actually commission new work. So, and you know, we, and I think the thing perhaps we're most proud of was when Helen Eastman was our producer 
um, someone who I think is going to appear on your podcast series at, at some point anyway, and I know you know her well. Um, and Oliver Taplin, who's very much associated with us as well, when Oliver and Helen brought together with the Oxford Playhouse, um, an extraordinary production of the Oristia, Aeschylus's Oristia trilogy called Melora over from South Africa, directed by a little known director as she then was, who now is an internationally known director, Jarl Farber. And we really believe um, that Melora in the Oxford Playhouse, where they took all the seats out, it was completely reconfigured, was one of, you know, one of the great sort of highlights of what the APGRD has done. And I also think as a kind of model for us all who work in, in academia, what academics can do when they're in conversation with artists. I think that's so interesting to us because as people will slowly realize as the podcast series comes out, we're very, very paired with academics. And it's something that a lot of people we speak to in theater are a bit confused by. But what we're learning is that with incredible organizations like the APGRD and the people backstage, with, with, with academics who are really interested nowadays in becoming, not even nowadays, but by the sounds of it, a really long time, becoming very, very practical and helpful about making sure that these, these stories are heard, they're documented, that as you well said, the, the cast and creators behind them are, are remembered for the task, but also that the, the work that we're doing, the art that we're doing stays relevant to not only what you're studying, but the way that we now re-look at the receptions of these plays. You know, they may be so old, but they're being made alive every time they're put on. And it, it, it's worth remembering that just because they're old, that doesn't make them stuffy. That doesn't mean they don't have to be modern. And this kind of work, I think, is, is super key because the only reason that, you know, we feel so able to do Medea is because there is this such a wealth of years and years of people putting on Medea, years and years of people in diaspora putting on Medea, years and years of people who are part of diverse communities using Medea as a mouthpiece. And I learned all of this from this wonderful uh, interactive uh, history of, of Euripides' Medea. And I encourage anyone and everyone, it will be linked next to the podcast, have a look through that book. It is, it's the most accessible, any academic thing I've read in, in all of my studies. And I would love to hear a bit more about, first of all, the idea of why an interactive ebook? What does that mean? How did you convince people that that was the way forward? I mean, still to me, I haven't experienced a lot of books in that kind of genre, in that kind of mechanism of getting your point across to a reader, but also, Later on, we can discuss a bit about Medea, that performance history, and, and what that meant putting it into this incredible, I mean, incredible medium that I'd, I'd never experienced before. So what is the story of this interactive uh, ebook and how that came about? Well, actually, the first book that the Research Centre, the APGRD, published was a collection of essays uh, called Medea, um, uh, Reception of Medea, Medea of Performance History. Um, uh, from the Renaissance, which now seems rather naive, um, and we're rather sort of, uh, well, I don't actually know whether we precise, I think we might have said 1500 to 2000. Um, and it it was kind of bold, and at the time, um, we believed quite innovative. Uh, we brought together, you know, people from diverse disciplines to think about the figure of Medea. Um, and, and also Medea in performance. Now, some years later, you know, 15 or so years later, it became apparent that a lot of the work we did at the beginning, which some of which had to be um, collecting data, because really in, in the early days, 
this was something that had fallen between academic stools. People, unlike Shakespeare, who had always been kind of studied through the performance history, Greek tragedy um, had never been studied in that way. It had only been, you know, the preserve of, of serious um, classicists, philologists who looked very carefully at um, uh, edits that had been done to the Greek text and commented upon them. This is where really the pioneering work of, of Oliver Taplin, who I've already referred to, came in because for Oliver, one of the first and definitely, I think, probably the first in the Anglophone world scholars who actually reminded readers, classicists in the first instance, that these plays were written for performance. So in some ways, in 2000, when we published the first Medea book, um, this was kind of new cutting edge stuff. People hadn't thought about Medea through time um, and particularly Medea on the stage. 15 years later, we have published multiple books on uh, you know, multiple plays, multiple figures, and um, thought about opera, musical theatre, thought about choruses, thought about dance. Um, at the time, we, everyone was beginning to think about something called knowledge exchange, which is the kind of academic way of describing what we were saying if I come into a rehearsal studio with you and oh, we right, discuss right. things and so on, that, that is formally knowledge exchange. We were running actually um, a course or asked to, to run and we ran it for the AHRC, a public engagement course where we got lots of young, brilliant graduate students post, you know, who are doing doctorates and young early career scholars. And we called it Communicating Ancient Greece and Rome. And I ran it with a, my brilliant archivist then Naomi Setchell, who came out of the museum section with sector with lots of ideas about opening archives and learning, teaching everyone, especially me, how to communicate um, in, in, with new media and so on. And I said to Naomi after four years of running these various wonderful courses, I mean, I have to say, we've got people like Bethany Hughes in the room. We've got all the kind of superstars who were classicists, but now communicating in wonderful ways to come and talk to our students and, and kind of encourage them. And, and, and they did brilliantly. And our students have gone on to do fabulous things, I have to say. But I said to Naomi and our team, research team, we need to up our own game. You know, here we are sort of running these courses, but you know, what are we doing? And the obvious thing we needed to do was to think about not only opening our collection. I mean, we already had an international team of researchers around the world who were contributing wonderfully generously to our database, but so much of the collection, as I said, was in the basement. We couldn't afford to digitize everything. And Naomi together with our, our um, then data developer, Tom Revell said, you need an ebook. And I'm afraid at that point to me, that meant something flat, 1D. I said, you, come on, convince me, what do you mean? And as Naomi said, let's go to museum sites, see what they're doing with objects, see how you can manipulate objects. We can do this with bits of our collection. We've got, you know, we can use film, we can use audio, we can commission new interviews, we can go and work with new artists and so came about an application to the Arts and Humanities Research Council for follow-on funding. We were successful, we were funded to do Medea 
and an Agamemnon book. And Tom Robel and Claire Kenwood, who succeeded uh, Naomi in the role, um, built the first book, the Medea book that you were referring to, and Claire and I have built the Agamemnon book. And not only have we bought those print publications, there was an Agamemnon one as well, up to date, but we have had such delight in um, talking to people who are literally either on the cutting floor or um, even inviting people who we've always admired as performers and we think they would make a brilliant Medea. Let's get them to voice it. Or we were extremely lucky in, in, with the Medea book especially because we were able to commission the first of Helen Eastman's barefaced Greek films um, because we had this funding. And we said to Helen, we need you know, that famous speech when Medea comes out of the house, the women of current speech, we need that on camera, but we don't want it in sheets and you don't want togas. We want something that has a contemporary feel. And Helen filmed that. And of course she did, as some people will know as well, brilliantly for the Agamemnon where the Watchman's speech, I think on YouTube has had a phenomenal number of hits as it's shot at the top, you know, somewhere down on, on, on the South Bank, I think. They've got, you know, at, at, at dawn, they've got um, uh, the watchman from the Agamemnon um, discovering uh, uh, the beacon um, over at Troy. And it's, um, so that's been such fun. I mean, big learning curve, delighted that you found it so helpful. Um, we had to completely rethink. And for me, especially as, a, as an academic, um, I had to learn how to write. I had to also learn how to share my text, the kind of thing, again, that writers in the world beyond academia do all the time. Yeah. And I had to watch um, colleagues telling me that <laughs> it doesn't work. And, and, and I've learned so much from people who pointed that out to me. And very often, if it doesn't work, it's again, perhaps more like television, it's because I realised that there's too many words and it's really about writing for images because we're trying to make our narrative really fit our connection and therefore give a kind of, well, not just another layer, but a very different multidimensional approach to what might otherwise be quite a kind of dry academic area of interest. I think that's what's so interesting. I mean, I don't want to give too much away about the Medea performance history because we will have another podcast on this wonderful book and the Medea performance history. And I'm sure that our listeners will be very interested to know it's well. But what I got from reading the book is not only is it accessible as someone who hadn't studied classics before I understood all of it, you know, it was full of Nina Gower's performance and a ballet of Medea and recordings of Medea or of ours and seeing how Medea had been depicted. And I think what, what comes across and what I, I definitely didn't know, and I'm sure a lot, a lot of people who, who aren't exposed to the, the field don't know, is a, a lot of active, contemporary, useful um, and, and really artistic uses for and, and interpretations of of, I mean, a play that was written 2,500 years ago. I, I find that baffling every time I think about it. A really, really old play that's relevant in now 2021. We're still talking about it. And, and that's the great thing about the book. And I'm sure I haven't read the Agamemnon, and I certainly should, that it's going to be the same idea because with this interactive format, those of us who don't just 
sit and read an academic's book. And I'm sure there are many, you know, academic tomes about Madeira and, and, and her performance history, but this is the, a way that I'm sure that messaging can be so much more successful and so much more accessible to those who maybe aren't so interested in just the raw academic history and, and don't know how to get their head around those kind of books, but can really understand and use this interactive book in a way that, that makes Medea real, that makes Medea accessible, that makes Medea's relevance today so clear, because often I think that's also forgotten. It's a story that, that, that so many people have told for so long for a reason, and that's because it's a story that, that still matters. And I think that that's an incredible thing that the book, that the book does get across to people. Well, I, I'm very, very pleased to hear that. And, and I'm sure our funders would be even more delighted to hear that. Um, we, we I, I, I'm thinking about relevance and perhaps something I, I, I took away was um, I had the opportunity in the making of the Medea book to interview not, not anyone from theatre, but in fact, someone who had been consulting. I think it was a production of Charpentier's Medea. Um, at, at that point, really a very little known early modern French opera that the ENO were going to put on at the Colosseum in, in, in London. And um, he turned out to be, you know, as I live in London, so as, as often happens, you know, a friend of one of my neighbours. And so I interviewed this psychiatrist whose who's, his, his expertise was on why do women kill their children. And um, it, it, it was one of the most interesting, you know, interviews I think I've ever had the pleasure, you know, and the privilege to kind of listen to. Um, and I almost hang, hung on every word because at that point I realized in many ways, of course, the way classical scholars had interpreted this text, you know, um, you know, for people of my generation, and I'm considerably older than you, Shiv, um, you know, uh, we had really been asked, despite the women in the room who really resisted this, to believe that, you know, what we were watching was some kind of monstrous woman. And here I was having a conversation with a psychiatrist who was pretty much telling me what kind of conversation he would be having with Medea in order to ascertain why she did it and what kinds of systems he would need to put in place to enable the healing process. And I, I, I found, so if, 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 if the ebook has allowed me, as it has, to have those kinds of conversations and then for us to be able to share them with others, as you say, I mean, I think that kind of conversation really does make Medea speak um, to, to us all, you know, and, uh, you know, the idea that this is a text from, from, as you say, two and a half millennia ago, and the only people who might engage with it would be rather dry and dusty classic, classical scholars, um, is, is, is they, a view that we really need, to, I think, to put to one side. And I think, continue on that, I mean, your most recent book I mentioned at the start, Performing Epic called Telling Tales. I mean, you can certainly tell, uh, tell, tell our listeners a lot about it, but just to give a bit of a framework, when I read the blurb, I haven't had the privilege of reading the book yet, but, you know, you turn to narrative in the 21st century theatre and the blurb, at the end of the blurb says something really interesting, which is that epics of ancient Greece and Rome are found to be particularly revealing and particularly telling of the contemporary wider cultural sphere. 
which again, at a glance, is just how can something possibly that old be relevant to, as you say, the contemporary wider cultural sphere? And what, you know, tell us a bit about the book, but also about this idea. I mean, why the name? What is what are you trying to get at here, which is specifically about 21st century theatre, not about 461 BC, but, but about the modern day? Well, during the course of um, our work on the Greek plays and their afterlife on the, the modern stages, uh, we became very aware that from probably um, about, I don't know, 2010 onwards, um, if not a little bit earlier, that there were almost in some years as many productions based on the ancient Greek and Roman epics as there were on the Greek tragedies themselves. And it really was the sheer number and indeed the sheer quality of some of these extraordinary pieces. And maybe unlike sometimes with the Greek tragedies when you knew that the major houses, playhouses around the world for a whole host of um, uncomfortable reasons from my perspective would feel they needed to put a Greek play into the repertoire just like they would of Shakespeare or something to make them uh, look like um, they were doing serious theatre. Right. Um, what was happening with epic was very often happening on the margins and in really exciting new work that was coming out very often from emergent uh, artists and you know I'm thinking particularly you know some of the rap poets and uh, performance poets um, uh, in working not only particularly in Britain but also um, in France and elsewhere in Europe and then increasingly we realised that this wasn't just a turn to epic as we've called it um, that, that had in any kind of European kind of focus but actually was a turn much more broadly to epics from all over the world. And I, I think, you know, we really, this is a book about Greek and Roman epic primarily, but it's also looking about epic traditions and storytelling in this wider context. And so- For our listeners, just define epic tragedy, why this is an interesting shift. Okay, well, the epic poets or the epic poems came before tragedy. So the stories of tragedy had already been told. And in the case of the Greek tragedies, they are mostly drawn, as people have famously told, from the banquet of Homer. And um, so the, the stories that we find in the Iliad of Homer and uh, the Odyssey of Homer are in many ways the basis of the plots of our extant Greek tragedies. And um, so very often, not in particularly in antiquity, but very much through the modern world, people have set epic, as now we think of it as an orally composed poem originally, probably composed by multiple poets and then eventually becoming a kind of canonical version that in turn gets written down. But it is, would have been a performed poem, which again, scholars very often forgot when they saw this genius, you know, Homer, 
<laughs> one person who had written this extraordinary long, 24 book long poem. And so there was in that sense, an idea of an oral long poem written in hexameter verse. And you then think of that as being absolutely different from the plays, tragedies, which of course, this being Medea, absolutely, absolutely. Where you don't have one poet or bard, as they were called, who recites the poem, and then at, at moments, of course, becomes the characters in the story. But instead, you've got actors who take different parts, and in the case of Greek tragedy, along with 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 a chorus, a group of singers and dancers, uh, as as. As, as I'm sure most people uh, listening will, will, will know very well. And in the modern world, very often people who thought or tried to theorize theater set epic and this thing called tragedy at loggerheads as made them very different uh, things. What we argue in the book that is, and, and, and in a way it's not a particularly um, original argument, but it seemed a very necessary one to make. And that is that that's a very false polarity. Epic and tragedy have so much in common. And in recent years, we see the way in which epic is being performed uh, to have many kind of tragic elements um, as indeed you know, one might be able to find many tragic moments in, in, in the epic poems themselves. But I think one of the reasons why um, our young artists uh, around the world seem to be excited by this material is that they have understood, and I think rightly understood, that if you're talking about art that's made collectively through an oral tradition, it means that there's a space there for you as an artist to create yourself. And so suddenly what looks like material that has been passed through generations is my material as much as your material, my material here and now in, you know, wherever we're sitting and anyone else's material anywhere else around the world. And, you know, if you talk to young artists like Kay Tempest, the fact that Homer was everyone's and nobody's was remarkably liberating. And uh, so we're very interested in that. And then maybe the final um, reason why we feel that Epic is speaking to the present moment, um, as we were you know, very much writing the last draft, sorry, I say we, because I co-wrote this book with Justine McConnell, who's um, a wonderful colleague, both at the APGRD, but is now, in comparative literature at, at King's College London. We were extremely aware of the post-truth world, um, you know, a world in which uh, politicians no longer lied but misspoke, a world in which no one, the world in which sadly we still reside, the world in which fact didn't seem to count, but how we felt about um, uh, our experiences mattered much more. And, we understood, and I think it's often been voiced by artists themselves, that turning to the epic tradition especially enabled them to access and indeed articulate emotional experience that 
was telling, picking up on the word that you mentioned before, in ways that the surface truths of the here and now very often seem to be denying to us. So the return of big narratives and big stories seemed very much to be part of this epic turn in very real sense was what um, emboldened us to write um, uh, why epic mattered now. And again, what we see here that I think is so interesting is that we're talking about Homer and we're finding relevance to exactly what's happening and art that's being made today. And something that I think I hope you as a sort of realizing is a, is a really big link, not only in this podcast, but through the other podcasts that we'll have with, with other academics and thinkers about classics, is that there isn't, or there doesn't have to be the notion of an outdated and set way of thinking about the classics and these books that are coming out, the productions that alongside ours, you know, Louis Alfaro in the States, there are so many examples if people look at the book and, and read through the performance history that you offer of these texts being being so relevant. I always always start with the first, you know, play put on with a freely put on in Cuba was Medea. You know, it's, it's such a remarkable history of these plays and, and you've pointed out not just even in the last 100 years, in the last 10 years, we see the the way that these ancient epics and, and plays both are being used by people to talk about to talk about what's happening and obviously that's exactly what what we want to do with Madeira and what we're aware other artists are doing with with these incredible productions and to sort of wrap up what would be interesting to hear from you is, is what you think about this idea that you know the classics is old but speaking to us about relevant topics that are changing day by day even today Big question, I know, but just as a sort of as a thought about where you think this is going, having having written this book and really explored what is going on, probably more so than just about anyone, about how the Greeks are acting acting globally right now. I think I hesitated slightly because I feel even I mean today you just need to look in the newspaper um, to read about discussions where classics has been and indeed continues to be. Um, misappropriated, you know, abused, misrepresented. And that's something, you know, I work quite a lot on, on the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s. So in some ways, um, uh, as people have argued, the trajectory from, you know, well, we can go way back to 18th century German ideas of a, um, you know, a kind of privileged uh, uh, sculptural Greek beautiful body end up um, informing and underpinning, albeit distorted, but no, nonetheless informing Aryan ideology, national socialism and the Holocaust. So this idea of Greece, and, and I think that's the most important thing, it's, it's ideas about Greece. This is ancient history. This is always distant in time. But every generation wants to try and interpret it. And at the moment, what I find most disturbing is that there are members, especially on the far right, who are using things ancient, particularly ancient Greek things, in order to justify um, serious attempts to undermine democracy and to oppress 
large numbers of people um, who, with whom we live. And the role therefore of, of classicists, including me, is to continue to examine the way that classics has been used through time. That's what classical reception is about. And be particularly attentive to what's going on now. And I'm very proud. I have serious colleagues who are intervening in these public um, events. And hopefully we will not allow people to hold up, you know, and therefore in turn uh, allow our discipline, I say our discipline, I mean, it's antiquity, it belongs to everyone and anything, but there are still people out there, especially as I say on the far right and particularly in North America, but very much here and you know, in fact everywhere across Europe, um, who, who are determined to co-opt um, figures from antiquity, Greco-Roman antiquity into their thoroughly ignoble causes. So, um, you know, if that's not a justification for continuing to study classics, it doesn't make me feel at all happy, but it is one real reason why we need to continue to do so. I, I mean, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating conversation. I know this is one that we will continue to have both privately, but we will have public discussions and podcasts about this very topic because it's so interesting. But the positive is, there are books like yours, interactive books like, like the APGRDs, there's our production and so many others that are actively now tackling those ideologies and incredible organizations, both here and in the States who are, who are fighting those. And it's gonna be great to, to be platforming them here. But for now, thank you so much, Fiona, for, for being on this podcast. You've been an invaluable ally to us for, for you know, coming up on three years now. And um, we thank you for your constant support and thank you for, for joining us here today. Thank you. And, and it's been a pleasure. And I look forward to, to increasingly great things from, from, from Chameleon.